Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape, assault, and murder of children and adults. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Romaine Jenkins has been waiting for this day for over a decade. It's 1987, and she's officially a sergeant. That means she has influence, power, more agency than ever before. And she knows exactly what she wants to do with it. She goes to the department's filing cabinet and pulls out a file labeled Freeway Phantom Murders. The case has been cold for over 15 years. It's high time to find answers. But as soon as Romaine opens the folder, she sees two words that make her sick to her stomach. Evidence destroyed. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll cover a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're covering a series of murders that shook Washington, D.C. in the early 1970s. The killer played a game of cat and mouse with the Metro Police, always slipping out of their grasp. That's why the media called him the Freeway Phantom. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. This Father's Day, give Dad the gift that guarantees him a great morning every day. That's Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's Best Pair You'll Ever Wear or its free guarantee. Get 30% off gifts for Dad on select Father's Day styles at TommyJohn.com. Save 30% at TommyJohn.com. See site for details. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There are plenty of factors that impact whether or not a case is solved, but one that's often overlooked is media attention. When someone's story is in the spotlight, there's more pressure for law enforcement to find answers. Today's episode features a case that took place in the nation's capital, but was largely absent from the national conversation. Until more recently, in 2018 and 2019, 
Reporters from the Washington Post and People Magazine Investigates brought this story back into the light, conducting new interviews with the people who were involved in and impacted by the case. Thanks to them, we can tell this story more fully. We'll start in Washington, D.C. in 1971. Richard Nixon is the president. The Watergate scandal is just around the corner. The Vietnam War is raging, and protesters flood the streets of the U.S. Capitol. Violent crime rates are steadily rising. Against this backdrop, locals try to create a sense of normalcy and live their lives amidst the chaos. They wear bell-bottom jeans, hang out at disco clubs, and sit on the stoops of their row house apartments reading newspapers all of which seemed to feature headlines about one crisis or another. That spring, a particularly tragic story appears on the front page. It marks the beginning of 17 months of terror, and it begins with a trip to the grocery store. On April 25, 1971, 13-year-old Carol Spinks breaks the rules. She's not supposed to leave the apartment. Her mother, Allentine made that very clear. But Allentine went to Maryland to visit a friend, and Carol and her seven siblings are home alone. They're hungry, so one of Carol's older sisters tells her to run to 7-Eleven and buy some bread, soda, and frozen dinners. The store is only a few blocks away, so Carol thinks she can get there and back without her mother knowing. She makes her way down a busy sidewalk on the southeastern side of Washington, D.C., But then, Carol stops in her tracks. She sees her mother right up the street. Apparently, she's back from Maryland early. They lock eyes, and Allentine isn't happy. She tells Carol to run the errand, then come straight home. They part ways. Now, with her head hanging a little lower, Carol speedwalks to the store. She picks her items off the shelves, checks out, and heads back down the street but she never makes it home. A short while later, Allentine returns to the apartment to find her other children in a panic. They know they're going to be in trouble for letting Carol leave. But as the clock ticks, they become less worried about themselves and more concerned for Carol's safety. It's been over an hour since she left. One of Carol's older sisters, Evander, goes to search for her, She traces Carol's steps, even speaks to the clerk at 7-Eleven, but Carol's nowhere to be found. Evander rushes back home and tells her family she can't find Carol. Allentine immediately calls the Metropolitan Police Department and reports her daughter missing. She's frantic, but authorities don't share the same level of urgency. They tell her, Carol's 13, she probably ran away. They don't dispatch an officer to the apartment, and they don't send anyone to search the neighborhood. They essentially leave Allentine to figure it out on her own. She calls friends, knocks on neighbors' doors, and assembles a search party. Together, they scour the area for any sign of Carol. But they don't find her, or any clues as to where she might be. Six days later, on May 1st, 
A group of children are playing in a grassy area behind St. Elizabeth's Hospital in southeast D.C. Cars rush past them on the nearby I-295 highway. They laugh, chasing each other through a small clearing, and then they see it. A girl lying dead in the bottom of a nearby embankment. They flag down a nearby Metro PD officer who calls for backup. Soon, two detectives arrive on the scene. They examine the body. A young black girl, very short and thin. She's been strangled and has cuts on her face, neck, chest, and hands. They identify her as Carol Spinks. Later, an autopsy reveals Carol was raped and it leads to another chilling discovery. Authorities believe Carol had been dead for two to three days when she was found, but it's been six days since she went missing, making detectives think she was likely kidnapped and held captive before being murdered. There are also undigested pieces of citrus fruit in her stomach, meaning whoever killed Carol must have fed her. When this news breaks, the entire community is horrified, Everyone asked the same questions. Who would do something like this, and why? A Metro PD officer named Romaine Jenkins is assigned to help with the case. She's 28 years old and a trailblazer on the force, the first woman to ever become a DC homicide detective. Romaine is fastidious, dedicated, and driven. She's ready to investigate, but it feels like she's the only one. See, it seems like a crime of this magnitude would capture the whole department's attention, but that's not what happens. Remember, this is 1971, and there's major political upheaval in the United States. The same day that Carol Spink's body is found, Washington, D.C. is flooded with anti-Vietnam War protests. Romaine Jenkins is supposed to go interview people in Carol's neighborhood, but instead, her supervisor tells her to patrol the streets. The reassignment is frustrating, but Romaine isn't the only one who gets pulled away from her current work. The whole Metropolitan Police Department is put on emergency alert, tasked with keeping an eye on demonstrations. The biggest protests began in West Potomac Park near the National Mall, which means law enforcement congregates in that area. The problem is, Carol Spinks was murdered in the southeastern part of the city, which is separated from the National Mall area by the Anacostia River, meaning police leave Carol, her family, and her community isolated, vulnerable. Even as time passes and the protests subside, Carol's case doesn't seem to be top of mind for law enforcement, And it's only a matter of time before her very same neighborhood is targeted again. About two months later, on July 8th, 16-year-old Darlenia Johnson leaves home for a shift at work, but she never shows up. Her mother, Helen, quickly reports her missing. And in the days that follow, Helen gets a series of haunting calls. Each time she picks up, she hears a man breathing. It's terrifying, and the worst part is, this happens before police have the technology to trace phone calls. Helen tells the police when the man contacts her, but there's no way for authorities to figure out who's calling. 
the man harasses her for over a week. Then one day, Helen picks up the phone and the man says, I killed your daughter. Then he hangs up. A few days later, on July 19th, Metro PD get a call about a body on the side of the I-295 highway. It's actually the third time they've heard about it. A week earlier, they received two reports about remains near the road. Officers were dispatched to the area, but they didn't get out of their cars to search. When they passed by, they didn't see anything, so they moved on. A week later, one of the original callers went back and realized the body was still there, decaying under the summer sun. It was like the police just left this person outside to rot. This time, he contacts his boss, who's friends with a DC police sergeant named Charles Baden. Even though he's off-duty, Sergeant Baden responds to the call, searches the area properly, and locates the remains. The victim is young, black, and female. But by this point, the body is so decomposed that no cause of death can be determined. The medical examiner has to use fingerprint analysis to find a name. It's Darlenia Johnson. It doesn't take long for authorities to figure out that Darlenia lived in the same neighborhood as Carol Spinks, and their bodies were found within 15 feet of one another. Detectives asked themselves, could these cases be related? But they barely have time to investigate before another girl is reported missing. Eight days later, on July 27th, Brenda Crockett's mother stares out the window, wondering when her 10-year-old daughter will be home. She left to grab some groceries an hour ago around 8 p.m. Concerned, her mother goes out to look for her. Soon after she leaves the apartment at 9.20 p.m., the phone rings. Brenda's little sister picks up, and on the other end, she hears Brenda's voice. The floorboards creak. The walls, they moan. The house seems vacant, but you're not alone. This October, Parcast invites you to celebrate the spookiness of the Halloween season with all new episodes of Haunted Places. From an infamous murder farm in Indiana to the ghostly tombs and palaces of ancient Egypt, visit the world's most haunted destinations and find out what happens when a soul leaves the body but doesn't leave the grounds. Enjoy new episodes of Haunted Places all month long, free, and only on Spotify. On July 27, 1971, a missing 10-year-old named Brenda Crockett calls her home phone. Her little sister answers, and Brenda tells her a white man picked her up. She's crying, but she says the man is going to send her home in a taxi. Brenda hangs up, then calls back about half an hour later. This time, her stepfather answers. She tells him she's being held in Virginia and asks if her mother saw her. She sounds distraught and confused. Her stepfather is also confused. 
He doesn't even really understand what Brenda is asking. He just responds, quote, How could your mother see you if you're in Virginia? Brenda mumbles a quick goodbye before hanging up the phone. It's the last time any of her loved ones will speak to her. Early the next morning, Brenda Crockett's body is found along the edge of Route 50 in Cheverly, Maryland, just outside of D.C. She's been raped and strangled to death. Officers deliver the news to Brenda's family. It's crushing. Brenda's mother sent her out for groceries just last night. Now, her daughter is dead. The family tells police about Brenda's calls the previous evening. They say Brenda was adamant that a white man had taken her to Virginia. But investigators don't think this adds up. Brenda's body was found in Maryland, not Virginia. And in any case, why would a kidnapper allow his victim to make two separate phone calls and give away information that could get him caught? They think the phone calls were a misdirection, a concerted attempt to lead police off the trail. Based on this, they make two assumptions. Brenda was probably never in Virginia, and her killer probably isn't white. But beyond that, they can't say much else. At this point, they're not even sure if Carol, Arlenia, and Brenda were murdered by the same person. And perhaps because detectives don't yet treat them as connected, the investigation into Brenda Crockett's murder doesn't turn up any real leads. It's another stall in the case. But it's not the end, because about two months later, a fourth victim is found. Her name is Nina Moshe Yates, and she's just 12 years old. On the evening of October 1st, 1971, her father sent her to a Safeway a block from their apartment in Southeast DC to buy sugar, flour, and paper plates. Her story is strikingly similar to those before her. She went to the grocery store, then vanished. Only two hours later, a teenager finds her raped and strangled on the side of Pennsylvania Avenue in Maryland, just outside of D.C. Her body is still warm. Metro police move through their standard procedure. They survey the crime scene, arrange for an autopsy, and interview Nina Moshe's family and neighbors. No leads jump out at them. However, at this point, police are fairly certain that all four murders are connected. If their hunch is correct, this would be the first known serial killer in D.C. history. Newspapers run with the story. Headlines give the killer a name. The Freeway Phantom. It highlights the fact that all his victims have been found along busy roads. And the fact that he's slipped away undetected every time. His nickname would make him more terrifying... But the community is tired of being afraid. Now, they're getting angry. They feel like police aren't giving the case their full attention. Victims' families have been forced to take on the responsibility of searching for clues and keeping each other safe. This is possibly the most serious crime spree to ever grip the city, but people feel like they've been left to fend for themselves. Perhaps in response to the media attention and community backlash, Metro police decide they can't handle this case on their own. They call the FBI. 
According to the documentary series People Magazine Investigates, federal agents revisit the evidence from all four cases, and they find something the Metro Police missed, an invaluable piece of forensic evidence. Three of the victims have hairs in their underwear that detectives think don't belong to them. DNA testing isn't yet available, but authorities can analyze the strands and figure out the source's ethnicity. According to the FBI, the hairs probably belong to a black man, who is almost certainly the girl's killer. With this information, agents determine a possible description of the freeway phantom. They believe he's a black man and a DC local, or at least someone who frequents the neighborhoods the girls disappeared from. Since he seems to be able to move around relatively undetected, it stands to reason that he blends in easily. It's a starting point, but it doesn't narrow the field much. There are tens of thousands of people who match that description. For police to find the killer, they're going to need something more specific. They keep digging for clues, and they find one, but not in the way they hoped. About six weeks later, on November 16, 1971, yet another body is found in Cheverly, Maryland. It's right beside the access ramp to the Baltimore-Washington Parkway, slightly north of I-295. Authorities identify the victim as 18-year-old Brenda Woodard. She attended a night class before going out to eat with a friend the previous evening. After dinner, she got on a bus alone, heading towards home, but she never made it back. The pattern plays out all over again. A young black woman kidnapped off the street, raped, and strangled. Unlike the other victims, Woodard had also been stabbed, which indicates that the freeway phantom is becoming even more violent. Woodard's own velvet coat is also draped over her body. This raises detectives' eyebrows. The killer has never bothered to cover any of the victims before. They take a closer look at the coat, and inside one of the pockets, they find a handwritten note. It says, This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. It's signed, Freeway Phantom. It's enough to send a shiver down anyone's spine. The Freeway Phantom is aware of his own nickname, and he seems to revel in it. He's taunting the police. But that's not even the most bizarre part. Authorities conduct a handwriting analysis and find that the letter wasn't written by the Freeway Phantom at all. It was written by the victim, Brenda Woodard. Investigators believe the killer dictated the note to Woodard. That way, police wouldn't be able to trace the handwriting back to him. This makes sense. But what doesn't is the fact that Woodard's penmanship is basically perfect. It's legible, smooth, calm, which seems odd to say the least. If Woodard knew she was in the presence of a serial killer, one would expect her handwriting to be shaky, to reflect the anxiety and fear she must have felt. This makes police think Woodard might have known the murderer personally. Perhaps she felt safe around him. Maybe she even thought writing the note was some weird joke. 
so police investigate Woodard's friends and family. But again, they don't find any promising leads. It's incredibly frustrating. By December of 1971, eight months after the Freeway Phantom's first killing, this is the information police ruminate over. There are five girls dead and a considerable number of clues. To start, the Phantom's M.O. All of his victims are young black girls. He abducts these girls right off the street. He rapes and strangles them, then leaves their bodies on the side of busy roads, all while never being seen. Next, the victims. The first victim, Carol Spinks, was found with fruit in her stomach, which leads authorities to believe the killer probably held her captive and fed her. The second, Darlenia Johnson, was from the same neighborhood as Carol. Darlenia's mother also received a series of calls from the Phantom. This makes police think the killer might live in Carol and Darlenia's neighborhood. They also get an idea of his personality. He's extremely bold and enjoys toying with his victims and their families. The third, Brenda Crockett, was from the opposite side of town. And this time, he made Brenda talk to her own family. To detectives, this indicates the killer is changing up his tactics. He also must have held Brenda captive for at least a few hours and taken her somewhere with a phone. The fourth victim, Nina Moshi Yates, was abducted, murdered, and found within just two hours. This was out of the ordinary, so officers think something might have happened to prompt such a fast turnaround. Maybe the killer almost got caught and was so shaken that he chose to get rid of the evidence as quickly as possible. As for the fifth victim, Brenda Woodard, the Phantom forced her to write a note to police in which her handwriting looks strangely calm, and she was the only victim to be stabbed. In the eyes of police, this suggests Woodard might have known her killer, and that the Phantom is getting more bold and violent. On top of all of this, Authorities have what they believe to be strands of the killer's hair, which makes them think the Phantom is a black man. But even with these clues, police still can't make any headway. People are frustrated. In interviews with People Magazine Investigates, many of the victim's loved ones say they feel like authorities don't care about them, and they can't help but ask themselves why. As they consider the facts of these cases, some start to think race might have something to do with it. People start to wonder, if the Phantom's victims were white, would the police be doing more? This question hangs over the community like a specter, just like the Phantom that prowls their streets. It seems like it's only a matter of time before the Phantom will claim his next victim but six months pass and no more bodies turn up. That's the longest pause in murders yet. By the 10-month mark, things are finally starting to feel somewhat normal again. The victims' families are still pushing for their cases to be solved, and everyone in the area is traumatized. But at the very least, locals aren't terrified to leave their houses anymore. That sense of normalcy gets destroyed once more on September 5th, 1972 when the Phantom comes out of hiding.
17-year-old Diane Williams spends the evening of September 5, 1972 with her boyfriend. They go on a date in southeast D.C., then he walks her to the nearest bus stop. He watches her get on board, and the bus drives away. The next morning, a trucker finds Diane's body on the side of I-295. She's been strangled, and forensic analysis reveals semen on her clothing. The freeway phantom has struck for the sixth time. Terror sweeps through the city again, and the people of D.C. search for answers. Certain patterns pop up. For example, some amateur sleuths notice that three of the six victims have the same middle name, Denise. This leads people to wonder if the phantom has a particular hatred for that name, and is specifically targeting Denise's. From our vantage point today, it's easy to say that locals are grasping at straws, but who can blame them when they've got nothing else to hold on to? It shows how desperate people have become. They're willing to entertain almost any possibility, even ones that seem patently ridiculous, because any bit of information could lead to the killer. Metro PD and the FBI don't agree that the Phantom is targeting Denise's, but contrary to popular belief, they're just as desperate to find answers as the locals are. Once again, they revisit all the forensic evidence and they find another clue. Five of the six victims have identical green synthetic fibers on their clothing. To police, they look like carpet fibers possibly from the inside of someone's car. Detectives take this as proof that all five were kidnapped and murdered by the same person, which means their hunch was correct. The Freeway Phantom is DC's first known serial killer. The only victim without green fibers is Darlenia Johnson, whose body was left outside for over a week It's possible the fibers were lost due to weather or decomposition. There's enough similarities between her murder and the others that even without that physical evidence, authorities are certain she was also a victim of the Phantom. So now police are searching for a black man who lives in or around DC and has green carpets in his car or home. Again, this doesn't exactly narrow the field which might be why investigators still can't make any headway. It's one dead end after another. The city is rife with tension as people anticipate another killing. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. Months turn into years. No more victims are found. It seems like the Phantom has finally disappeared for good. The investigation continues, but it's running on fumes. Authorities know that in order to crack this case, they're going to have to shift tactics. In 1974, two years after the last victim was killed, the FBI creates a task force of over 100 detectives and agents to find the freeway phantom. The task force looks into hundreds of suspects, from an army general to a psychiatrist to a computer engineer named Robert Askins. Robert catches their attention. Further investigation reveals he's a convicted murderer. 
He poisoned a sex worker in 1938 and served 20 years in prison. They also find that in some of Robert's court documents, he uses the word tantamount, the same word the freeway phantom used in his letter to police. It's a very loose connection, but it's the best authorities have. So they get a search warrant for Robert's property. They find a trove of disturbing items, photos of girls and young women, buttons and jewelry under the seats of his car, and a knife that was apparently used in another crime. Officials take samples of the carpet from Robert's home and car, as well as strands of his hair. Neither match the fibers or hairs found on the victims. But the investigation does yield evidence that proves Robert kidnapped and raped two other women in the D.C. area. He receives a life sentence for those crimes. Detectives got a dangerous criminal off the streets. But they couldn't definitively tie Robert Askins to the freeway phantom murders. They're forced to look elsewhere. They continue to hit dead ends until later that year when they zero in on another potential suspect. His name is Morris Warren. Warren is a known member of the Green Vega Gang, a group of several men who committed a series of kidnappings and rapes in D.C. around the same time as the Freeway Phantom murders. Authorities suspect there could be a connection between the crimes. Warren is currently incarcerated, so investigators take this as an opportunity to approach him. When they ask him about the Freeway Phantom case, he's a surprisingly open book. He tells them the Phantom isn't actually one person. It's a number of the members of the Green Vegas. He says he can prove it by telling authorities what he remembers and showing them where the bodies were found. It feels like a promising lead, but when Warren talks about the crimes... The details don't actually add up. In fact, they point to other crimes, a number of rapes that Warren committed and was later charged with. Later on, police find letters that Morris Warren wrote to other members of the Green Vega gang. In them, he admits that he lied to investigators in the hopes of getting his prison sentence shortened. It's another dead end. And for many, it's a full stop. The FBI's task force slowly disintegrates. Over the next 13 years, a number of the original investigators on the case retire. Others move on to different projects. The freeway phantom murders seem unsolvable to many. A lost cause. But Romaine Jenkins the investigator who was supposed to interview Carol Spink's family way back in 1971 has never stopped thinking about these crimes. Ever since the Freeway Phantom's first murder, she's been working her way up in the department. She started as a homicide detective, then she became a supervisor. Finally, in 1987, when she was 44 years old, she got her biggest promotion yet she became a sergeant. That means she finally has the power and leverage to really make change. And one of the first things she does is open up the case files for the Freeway Phantom murders. Staring her right in the face are two words that she never imagined she'd see. 
evidence destroyed. The hairs, the green fibers, and the original case files are all gone. All Romaine can think is why. At the time, a police officer needed to prove a case had been closed before they could destroy evidence. But the Freeway Phantom case was very much open. Romaine can't make sense of this decision. Her best guess is that the case had been so forgotten that people just assumed it was closed and allowed the evidence to be discarded. Romaine is devastated, but she's not going to give up that easily. She calls the FBI and asks for all the information they have on the case. She contacts the original investigators and gathers up their notes. She rebuilds the case file as well as she possibly can. She passes this back to the FBI's recently formed Behavioral Analysis Unit. They put together a potential psychological profile of the freeway phantom. They believe he's a textbook psychopath, commits his crimes alone, and has a deep hatred for women. They also think he was in his late 20s or early 30s at the time of the murders and probably had a job somewhere in the area. Most importantly, he likely knew at least some of his victims, and in every case, he appeared to be able to gain the girl's trust. Next, they turn to a map of Washington, D.C. They plot each point where a victim's body was found and use the pattern to determine the killer's comfort zone, that is, areas he likely frequented and could move around in relatively undetected. This is all good information to have, but at the end of the day, it can only take authorities so far. Even if they can identify a suspect, they can no longer compare his hair with the strands found on the victims. They can't match his carpets with the green fibers. The most important evidence in the investigation can't be recovered. So while they rebuild the case file and make a few new discoveries, ultimately, investigators have no way of moving forward. The lack of real forensic evidence is a barrier they just can't break through. It's heartbreaking. In a later interview with People Magazine Investigates, Romaine Jenkins says, quote, Every mystery case is like solving a puzzle. If you don't have all the pieces, you can't do it. Romaine retires in 1994 with the puzzle still incomplete. Even though she's no longer officially a member of the force, Romaine still looks into the freeway phantom murders from time to time. She keeps copies of the case files in her home for reference, and images of the six young victims are burned into her mind. There have been small blips of hope throughout the years, in 2002, Metro Police learned something shocking. Some forensic evidence actually did still exist. The Maryland Medical Examiner's Office had found semen on one of the victim's bodies, and they still had a sample of it in storage. Analysts tested it for DNA evidence, but were unable to extract any usable information. It was a huge blow to everyone hoping for answers, most of all the victim's families. Those closest to the victims have never emotionally recovered from their loss. They can't, not when they still don't have answers. 
In the years after the murders, they connected with each other. They met up regularly to remember their loved ones, pushed for a continued investigation into the murders, and discussed their frustration with the Metropolitan Police. They share a similar refrain. As we mentioned earlier, they wonder, if the Phantom's victims had been white instead of black, would the police have paid more attention? Would their murders have been solved? According to data from the Scripps Howard News Service, between 1980 and 2008, murders involving white victims were solved 78% of the time. When a murder involved a black or Hispanic victim, that number dropped to 67%. Another study by the Washington Post compiled data from between 2007 and 2018. It determined that across the 52 largest cities in the U.S., nearly three-quarters of unsolved murders involved black victims. And it's also not just the families of the freeway phantoms victims who think race might have played a role in how the cases were handled. Tommy Musgrove, an officer who joined the Metro Police in 1972, went on the record saying, quote, If those girls had been white, they would have put more manpower on it. There's no doubt about that. Romaine Jenkins agrees that the freeway phantom victims weren't considered enough of a priority among the Metro Police. She also adds that race was just one of many factors that hindered the investigation. There were also the protests that took over officer schedules, a general sense of disorganization within the department, and the fact that priceless evidence was destroyed. That's really the most inexplicable part of this case— those hairs and fibers might have been the key to solving this mystery. But now, the door to the truth remains firmly locked. However, there is one upside. Following Romaine Jenkins' second investigation, the D.C. City Council stepped in to ensure that nothing like this ever happens again. They mandated that all evidence in unsolved homicide cases must be kept for a minimum of 65 years, which is a step in the right direction, but for the victims' families, it doesn't take away the sting of their loss. They've spent decades mourning their loved ones, hoping for a breakthrough, hoping for answers. And some still hold out hope that those answers will come. Maybe someone, somewhere, has the missing piece that can help solve this puzzle. Diane Williams was the last known victim of the Freeway Phantom, and as her sister Patricia told the Washington Post, quote, You never forget. There is no closure. Whoever did it has gotten away. They may be living somewhere else, doing it again. It's not too late to say something. You have a whole generation of family members who would like to see someone brought to justice. If you have any information about the murders of Carol Spinks, Darlenia Johnson, Brenda Crockett, Nina Moshe Yates, Brenda Woodard, or Diane Williams, contact the Metropolitan Police Department. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back next Monday with another cold case. 
For more information on the Freeway Phantom murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Freeway Phantom episode of People Magazine Investigates extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Karis Allen, edited by Sarah Batchelor, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, sound designed by Russell Nash, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>